Well, we're in the last two sermons, Lord willing, of uh, 2 Corinthians. We began this journey in Paul's letter, uh, second letter to the Corinthians on August 29th of last year. So it's taken us about a year to uh, walk through verse by verse of this wonderful, wonderful letter. Uh, next Sunday, we will finish up, Lord willing, 2 Corinthians. Uh, and this Sunday, we'll be looking at Paul's final prayer and then next week, we'll be looking at the final benediction uh, at the end of the Corinthians. And then on Sunday, the 21st, as we kick off the autumn season uh, with our home groups, with the return of many of our college students, we'll be starting a new series on First and Second Thessalonians, which will probably take us up until uh, the May uh, time frame. So uh, if you just stay here long enough, we're going to get through every book of the Bible. <laughs> so stick around for the ride. Uh, it's going to be just a wonderful opportunity. And uh, we have really enjoyed uh, going through Paul's letter to the second Corinthians. There have been some just powerful, powerful uh, uh, thoughts on uh, and, and teachings on doctrine, but also a great defense of the, of the faith and uh, the apostleship of the apostle Paul. But one of the things we're going to see in this morning's passage is that Paul, of course, was an avid prayer. That's something that we all need to go to school on, on the Apostle Paul. We all need to improve our prayer life, be more devoted to that. It's actually one of the most difficult disciplines in the Christian life, isn't it? We tend to daydream and call it prayer. But, but true, heartfelt, meaty prayer is something of a challenge for us. And my hope is that today, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 10, uh, that we are going to be able to emulate much of what the Apostle Paul does as he's showing us and through this and other verses about how it is that he prays for the churches of Jesus Christ. One example of that is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. For this reason, I too, having heard the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, he's talking, of course, to the Ephesian church, and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. My, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Wouldn't you love to be able to pray like that? Those are just beefy, meaningful, doctrinally rich prayers for the spiritual behalf of the Ephesian church. Well, my hope is that we'll, we'll up our game a little bit in our prayer life as we look at the precious passage that Paul has given us today in 2 Corinthians 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now and see what he might do as he applies this truth to our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, in faith, we turn to you right now, recognizing the fact that uh, if there is an area of defect in our lives, it is very often going to be a defect of prayer. And Lord, we, uh, we wish people well, we think about people, but we just probably don't pray the way we should. And even for those of us who have an active and vibrant prayer life, I pray, God, that you would help us to learn from Paul's final prayer today. Help us to go to school on the great apostle and to be others-oriented as we seek to answer these prayers. So many of us have been discouraged in our prayer life because you have said no. And Lord, that's because we, we miss the, the meaning of prayer. You've given us prayer in order that we would be able to draw close to our Father who is in heaven. Whether you say no or yes, we want to have a loving, abiding relationship that trusts you for the no's and the yes's of life. 
So I pray, God, that you would help us to hold fast in our prayer life, to improve that, and to look at this wonderful uh, purpose of prayer that Paul gives today in his final prayer to the Corinthian church. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, and we're going to look at basically two sections here. We're going to see a, a prayer for obedience and then a prayer for the sanctification of the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 10, God says, and Paul writes, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. For this very reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So we see here, first of all, prayer of obedience, verses 7 through 9 here. And, and I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of background to you if you haven't been on our journey with 2 Corinthians to know what it is that Paul's talking about. You've got this approval, not approval, what's going on, weakness, strength, and that sort of thing. But both of these sections that we have here, the prayer for obedience and the prayer for sanctification, start off with we pray, we pray. So he's telling us what the, the content of what his prayer is. Now we, we pray to God that you do no wrong. When I saw that, I thought about you physicians and, and the Hippocratic uh, oath that you took as physicians that you would first do no harm. And that's sort of the basic tenet of Christianity. That's a, that's a Christianity that a nine-year-old can understand. We don't do harm. We don't do wrong. We do the right thing. So he's, he, he is hoping that their conscience has been pricked that they are sensitive to doing right and wrong, that they will repent from their immorality, their gossip, and those other things, but also from their resistance to the authority of the church, of the Apostle Paul here. So he's praying that they're not going to do wrong, not that we may ourselves be approved. And this is where you might get a little confused here. Paul, Paul's main goal in writing them is not seeking approval. He should already have that approval. You know, he, he reminds them uh, that, that he was with them for almost two years and that he did the works of the apostles amongst them uh, and that because of the proof and his, the evidence, he planted this church. He gave them the word of God. They saw uh, miracles at the time. They should not be questioning his authority. And yet, usurpers have gone in and they've caused some concern and they've distracted people from, from a pure faith. But basically, his, while he may appear unapproved, that's not his concern. What he wants is their obedience and their sanctification. Because God is the final judge on who's approved and who's not. This is the danger of us, uh, of us judging one another. Uh, because uh, we don't know all the facts of what's going on in a situation. And, but God does. So there's a great God who's a just God, who's an all-seeing God, who knows exactly what's going on. Paul leaves it up to God to approve him. He's not concerned about the opinion of the Corinthians. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it, To me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord." That really ought to be our goal in life because, as I tell you, in this culture, if you obey the Lord, you will be disapproved by the culture. They despise righteousness. They despise holiness. They will take everything that you do that's good and holy and clean and they will malign it. 
So in many ways, you're left to understanding Holy Scripture and you're left to, 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 to the approval of God Himself. Too many of us are into this morbid introspection that just debilitates us. We think we're being humble by beating ourselves up all the time and what you're actually being is ineffective because you're so consumed with yourself, you're not consumed with those who are out there. And, and, and part of what it means to pray here is you're praying for others, you're praying for the church, you're praying for the government, you're praying for the salvation of people and that kind of thing. You can't be just consumed with yourself. You've got to be, there, got to, there needs to be a point in time. You just trust grace. You just trust grace. You're not going to be a libertine. You're not going to be flippant, but you just trust grace. And that's why Paul is moving forward aggressively. If Paul had been into this dour introspection that so many of us are consumed with, he never would have been able to turn this church around. He would not have had the strength to do that. He would have questioned everything that he had. So he's basically telling them, uh, do no harm here. Uh, and, 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 I, and I love this too, because you think about how dysfunctional this church is. You go back to 1 Corinthians, you look at 2 Corinthians. This is his troubled church, right? I'm always amazed when people call themselves like the, the first Corinthian Baptist church or the Corinthian Methodist church out there. That would not be the church I'd copy, you know. Uh, they, they were not the stellar example of Christian piety, okay. And yet Paul always has hope. He's like a parent. A parent, no matter what their child does, they always have hope that they're, they're going to do the right thing eventually. He just never gives up on the Corinthians. Uh, and I was even thinking about that particular uh, situation, a couple of situations that came up. You, you remember uh, in 1 Peter 3 when Peter praises Sarah for calling Abraham Lord? You know that example which causes confusion and which feminists hate. Uh, but Peter says, Sarah even called Abraham uh, Lord. If you check the cross-reference of the verse that he is talking to back in Genesis, you know the conversation that's going on there? It's when Sarah had, laughed at what God said that, that a son would be born to her and that she was questioning and she had a lack of faith. And yet Peter, in all of Sarah's mistakes there, Peter picks out the one little thing that she did right. She called Abraham Lord. She submitted to his authority over the household. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's picking, the, he, he just has hope. He's not naive, but he has hope that the Corinthians are going to do the right thing. They're, not, they're going to do good, and they're not going to do evil. I was reminded of this passage uh, at, uh, at Ryan and Emma's wedding here in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, love bears all things. That idea is to bear, is to cover, or, or to support. So it, 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 it bears and protects by covering other people. So we just have to look, overlook our faults. We have to overlook other people's faults. Uh, love believes all things, always trusts. It trusts. It's not cynical. It's not skeptical. Uh, but uh, but it, it is uh, also not naive. Paul is not naive here, right? I mean, he's, he's, he has preached thunder to the Corinthians. And yet, he, he believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. He believes in the, that the Word of God will not return void. And he, and he hopes that they will turn around. It's a beautiful uh, idea, too, about what Paul prays for the, first, for the Thessalonians, the first Thessalonians chapter 2. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly, blamelessly behave towards you believers. He's having to defend, or he's not having to, but he's defending his apostleship and reminding them of, of uh, his example when he was with them, like he did with the Corinthians. It worked for the Thessalonians, not so much with the Corinthians. Just as you know that we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. 
so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is the goal, the dream of every grandfather, every grandmother, every uh, parent, every mother, every father. Their children walk according to the scriptures. They would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us. Isn't that our dream for ourselves? Let's walk worthy. You know, I love it. We have a Trail Life uh, USA troop here, and that's actually their motto, walk worthy, with this passage from 1 Thessalonians. And the, the Trail Life, uh, many of the, 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 the Boy Scouts, Christian Boy Scout uh, leaders, just got fed up with the political correctness of the Boy Scouts, and they started the Trail Life USA troops. And instead of, have, instead of having a sash with badges on it like we did when we were Boy Scouts, they have a walking stick. And they put the basic medals and the awards on that walking stick. So they, they just reemphasize that whole point. The whole reason why you're in this program, the whole reason why you're in this life is to walk worthy. That's a good prayer, folks. That covers everything. Walk worthy. So as you're praying for different people, you might consider starting off by saying, Lord, let them walk worthy of the calling that they have. When you're a, an adopted child of the king of the universe, it's just not for you to be wallowing in the mire and the filth of this world. He says here, even though we may appear unapproved, again, uh, there's a twisted logic here with the, 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 the people, the usurpers, the people who are attacking the apostle Paul. They're starting to say this, that if Paul really was an apostle, he would come in and start tearing down tables. He would start knocking some head together, that kind of thing. Well, Paul is choosing the higher ground here. He's choosing the more difficult uh, route of grace. He's choosing love instead of a whip. And he's basically said, if that means that we're not approved, that's fine. Because we think ultimately that's actually proved them to be false. And we're actually going to be here. I don't have to display these mighty acts of judgment. You know, if you will go ahead and repent and turn things around. And he says here, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. That idea of truth here uh, refers to, to the, 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 the whole... Uh, revelation that God has given us through scripture. Now notice this, there's a definite article in the Greek here. It's the truth, the truth. If you don't get anything else from this sermon, you need to get this. There is such thing as the truth. And if you go against the truth, you are speaking error. Now, I wouldn't have had to preach that 50 years ago. Everybody goes, well, of course, that's so dumb. That's so redundant. But in this culture, there's no such thing as the truth. You all own your own truth. Truth is whatever you want to make it. So therefore, you can be whatever you think you might want to be. It's, all in, it's a mind game where they deny spiritual truth. I'll give you a great example. This example that came up when we were at the Family Bible Conference. Uh, uh, borrowed from one of the, the, the ministers up there, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, in her acceptance speech for the Golden Globe Award in 2018 said this. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Now, notice she didn't say speaking the truth. She didn't have the truth. She said speaking your truth. So you've got truth. You've got truth. You've got truth. What if they conflict? They're still all truth because they're your truth. And then they would show these. If you're watching this speech, they show the cameos of all the Hollywoodites. And they're all looking at her. That's so profound. So she's she's a goddess. Oh, listen to what she says. I mean, it's, it's pathetic, but it's very, very dangerous. One political commentator said after that, her, her, she made that speech about you need to speak your truth and that's going to actually be the powerful tool that we have. 
He said, he said this, we all know that there's no such thing as your truth. There is the truth and your opinion. Now, that's true. And that's true for us, too. We could be wrong on something, right? But this idea that you, you, have, you can just create your own universal, uh, your own universe of, of your own particular truth is extremely dangerous because they're going to conflict. And they will shout you down if you actually stand up for something that's an absolute truth. Studies show that most born-again Christians do not believe in absolute truth. Y'all, if they ever do a study in this church and we get half the people saying we don't believe in absolute truth, you just need to fire me. You need to ask the Presbytery to fire me. <laughs> it's the way we do things around here. You don't believe... No, I'm kidding. All right, let's go. Uh, for we rejoice when we ourselves are, are, are weak, but you are strong here. He says, basically, if the Corinthians are strong to do their repentance uh, and, and they embrace Paul's authority, then it suits him just fine to be weak. Uh, 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 we will have, uh, he basically, he, he doesn't feel like he has to enforce the authority. This is a position that pastors and church leaders are often put in a position of. There have been times when, when, there are times when we just have to take the fall. We have to take the fall in order to not harm the reputation of a spouse or a child or something like that. We just, and Paul is saying that. He's Paul is saying, it suits me fine. You can consider me an idiot if you'll repent. If you repent. A parent will bleed for their child. And that's the kind of love that, that Paul has for the churches here. His concern is for the Corinthians that, if the, that, that the sort of love and mercy and humility that makes him look weak uh, uh, that suits him just fine as long as they walk with the Lord. But he does remind them that he has been weak and he has struggled. He told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he gave us something of his testimony, his, his resume of difficulty. For I thank, God has I thank God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To present uh, uh, to, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. We are reviled. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even into now. It's really remarkable. It sounds like, uh, uh, it sounds like the, the advertisement, supposedly, that uh, Ernest Shackleton put in the, uh, in the London Times when he was looking for people to go on his expedition. His, his goal was to take a ship, the Endurance, and to walk across Antarctica. And according to some sources, the advertisement said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, journey low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in event of success. And supposedly there was a line outside of his audience lining up for that. I think about, I think about Jack and for others who are in seminary. At some point in time in their semin seminary career, if it doesn't happen multiple times as it did with me, some professor is going to take a liking to the student and he's going to say, if you can think of anything else to do other than go into the ministry, please do it. Please do it. Go to school in the Apostle Paul. Count the cost before you build the tower. Look at what you're going to have to go through. And yet, Paul says this, there is such powerful and po there's such power in that. 
being weak is being strong in the Lord because God, frankly, calls weak people into the ministry. Because if you think you're acting, you got your act together and you think you're God's gift to the church. Uh, well, OK, in a sense, you are God's gift to the church. But if you think you're God's gift to the church, the big head type, you know, you don't need God. Right. But God wants people. He wants ministers. He wants you to be completely dependent upon him. And I'll be honest with you, if you're not, you're kind of missing the point of Christianity in many ways, right? He told the Corinthians in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Your, your problem really isn't with the difficulties of life. Di life is difficult. Some people have more difficult lives than others. Some people have gone through great mourning. Some people are struggling with chronic diseases. Some people have re rebellious uh, children. Or they have difficult parents, whatever it might be. Those are all difficult things. But your, your, your problem is losing your focus. Your problem is getting your eyes off of God. Your problem is forgetting that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. Paul hadn't forgotten that. That's why he's still in the fight with the Corinthian church. Most of us would have given up a long time ago. But Paul had the deep-seated commitment to contentment. To be content. Even while he's floating in, after a shipwreck. Even after he is beset by robbers. Even after he has gone hungry. Even after he has been emotionally wrecked by these churches. He said, no, my God's good. I deserve hell. He's given me grace. Everything in between there he controls. I trust him. Boy, if we could latch on to that. And I, we've never had a more discontented culture in our society than we do here today. We just cannot be a part of that. So he's praying for their, uh, uh, Paul is, is saying, your restoration is what we pray for. That's verse 9 here. This is uh, what love looks like. It's what love prays for. It's what uh, he wants them to embrace the gospel. And that should be the primary focus of our prayers. Now he's praised for sanctification here in verses 9b through, through 10 here. And let me just kind of define some terms here. Sanctification. Uh, uh, there are basically two big uh, uh, Audiences, I guess, if you could say it this way, of verses of Scripture. There's a salvation principle where you need to become saved. But once you're saved, it's all about sanctification. You only get saved once. We believe that church is for Christians. So we tend to preach sanctification. We will, we will mention the gospel. We will ask people to surrender their lives to Christ. We don't want to miss opportunities for salvation. But we preach, we are here to equip you to do the work of ministry. So Sunday primarily is for Christians. So, it's, so we tend to emphasize sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, we happen to have a Westminster Confession of Faith. Shorter, Howard Cox would be so pleased with this sermon. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 35. What is sanctification? Listen to this. The work of God's, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's given to you by God's grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Anthony Hokema in his book, Saved by Grace, defines sanctification as that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us from the pollution of sin renews our entire nature according to the image of God and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. 
So sanctification is growing up. You're born again at salvation. When you're born, you'll grow up for the rest of your life. That's sanctification. And that should be the burning desire of every one of us. And this is taught throughout Holy Scripture. Jesus himself said in John 17, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he's praying to his Father, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So, what's the connection there? Sanctification is grace, and that grace comes through the Bible. So, what do you need to do? You need to read the Bible. You need to study the Bible. You need to be around people who understand the Bible. You need to come to church, right? 2 Corinthians 3, earlier on this, this wonderful letter, Paul said, But we all with an unveiled face, behold in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory into glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's sort of our theme verse that's been on this banner up here for this entire year. This idea of being transformed. We are being transformed into the image of God. It is an act of God's grace. But notice he, he goes on to say that you need to cleanse ourselves from defilement. So you're not going to find... You're not going to find Sal, uh, uh, sanctification, though it's a, it's a grace of God, the working part of that is, you're not going to find that ever separated from your just sweating it out in obedience. You're really moving towards principles of self-control, towards love, towards justice for all those things. This is not something, as opposed to salvation, which is all God, sanctification is a cooperative effort between you and God. And that's what the Corinthians are missing. They're just not willing to put in the effort to obey. That's what so many Christians uh, are missing. As a matter of fact, this is almost a theme in many evangelical churches. We have these antinomian pastors, these against the law pastors, because they've been so hurt by fundamentalism and legalism and, and the, this, this uh, performance mentality, which is so misused in so many churches. They basically say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about obedience. You shouldn't be consumed with a performance mentality. You can't perform for God. He's already accepted you if you're a Christian. You shouldn't be a legalist. You shouldn't add to Holy Scripture. But you should wear yourself out in obedience. You should seek to keep the law of God. And guess what? When you fail, you keep trying. You don't give up. And you will all fail. Every one of us will go to our deathbed thinking, I can't believe I'm still doing that after all these years. Isn't that what you think when you, we have the confession of sin of the service? I can't believe I'm coming to you again and saying I, I'm having to ask for forgiveness. Well, that's where the grace comes in, folks. And one of the beautiful things about sanctification is you are sanctified as a Christian. You are set aside for God's holy purposes. You are being sanctified throughout your life. And one day you will be completely sanctified. Paul kind of makes that reference here. This is, we also pray that you will be made complete. That idea of complete is adequate, fully qualified, or sufficient. It's actually used of mending a, a fishing net, fixing something. That's what we want, isn't it? Don't we want to be fixed? Well, that's what God is doing. He is fixing you. It's one reason why you're here. You're in the shop to get the net fixed right now here. And I love what Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says in Colossians chapter 1, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, 
so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to the power which works mightily in we, me. And there, that word uh, for, uh, for completion actually means to reach its end, to actually achieve its goal. That's our goal in life. And what, what we will do one day, we will be fully, fully sanctified, set apart. And when we look in the mirror, we see Jesus because we've been robed in his righteousness. So uh, our goal is to be perfected in Christ as, human, as much as humanly possible. What we don't want to do, we don't want to wait till the end, right? Because we love God and we want to please him. What does that look like? Colossians chapter 1. Uh, here's again another prayer for sanctification. We have not ceased to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience joyously, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified for us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The inheritance of the saints of light. Isn't that something? You're actually there now if you're a believer. You just can't see it right now. God can. The angels can. Jesus can. The Holy Spirit tells you at times that you are there. Here, one of the things I love, you know, one of my favorite benedictions is, comes from Jude 24. And I, and I love that because it gives us so much hope when we receive that benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You know, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God told him, you can't, you'll die. But there's going to be a point in time when we will be able to stand before the glory of God and cry out, Abba, Father, because we have a relationship with him get bought for us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's a thought. So many of our prayers relate to health concerns, don't they? Health concerns. That's legitimate. We should be praying for people's health. Often they're job concerns, relational concerns. They're the things of this world that are vexing us, that are causing us difficulties. Pray for those things. Pray for the health. Pray for the new job. But first, pray God... Whatever you're doing in this difficult situation, in this person's life, I pray that you would sanctify them through them. Because the fact is, God will give you a, or allow you to get a chronic disease in order to grow you up into him. To kind of to give you a new plateau of maturity. And for those of you who've been tried in that kind of thing, one of the things you find out is the things that really bothered you a few years ago just don't ever bother you again because you've been through this, Right? That's part of the process. We keep trying to convince God, if you just give me everything I want and give me a carefree life, I will really walk, walk with you. That is a lie. You will not. You will not. But when he takes everything away from you, the Christian will fall on his knees and say, it's yours. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take it. Take it. Now, we don't immediately get there. I mean, none of us get a bad news from the doctor and we go, oh, boy, I can feel the sanctifying power of that report. No, you know, right? You'd be a little weird if you did that. But over time, not only will you be blessed and sanctified, you're going to help bless and sanctify others who are going through similar difficulties. So he says here, for, for this reason, I'm writing these things while absent. You know, his, this, these, the, these things here is what all he's written, all 13 chapters here of 2 Corinthians. So he's kind of 
tying it all together here so that when I uh, am present, I will not need to use severity. Remember, Paul is concerned. He has gotten reports that there's strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossips, disturbances, that kind of thing, uh, which he mentions in chapter 12. And he wants them to repent. He's already had a difficult second visit. He doesn't want a difficult third visit. He wants to be able to come as the gracious father, like a father who's been on a trip and brings beanie babies back to their kids. That's what I always did, bring beanie babies back. We have bins of beanie babies uh, in our garage right now. He wants to be able to reward them. for the. He doesn't want to come in with a paddle. But he's willing to come in with a paddle here. He reminds them, according to the authority that God has given me, he's reminding them again that he was called by God himself, and but for the building up and not the tearing down. It is his desire to build up the church, not tear down the church. But some of that has to do with the church. It's your desire, parents, not to paddle your children. But that has a lot to do with the children's decision, right? Are they going to submit to authority? Are they going to do the right thing? Are they going to do when, what, they, what you told them to do? They're going to stop hitting their sister, whatever it might be. It's up to them whether they get disciplined or not. But then once, it's, once they've drawn that line or walked over that line, you've got to be firm. And that's what Paul's kind of saying here. He said, I don't want to come tear down, but buddy, I will. We don't need another cult. We don't need another pseudo mediocre chestless church in town. I believe Paul, if they didn't repent, he'd pull the whole church down and start back over again with a remnant that still wants to believe. Isn't that what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said in his vision uh, to uh, John on the island of Patmos? Warning the churches that if they don't repent, he's going to remove their lampstand. Paul would do the same thing if he needs to. So what does that look like? Well, Kent Hughes kind of gives a summary of what it might look like today. Today, the warning stands over the church and especially those who have transmitted the light, the present cultural values into the church so that the church is little more than a Christianized version of modern culture. The warning stands where leadership is built on the cult of personality, where image is everything. The warning looms where worship is showtime, where pre the preaching is entertainment, where God's word is muzzled and the pulpit panders to itching ears. The warning echoes where we, are to uh, where we are the focus of worship, our feelings, our comfort, our health, our wealth, where the super apostles were preferred over the apostle Paul. Basically, Paul's writing this letter and he says, here's your last chance. Here's your last chance. We're kind of done. There's no more time out. <laughs> no more count to three. This is it. When I show up to town... I want to see some repentance, and it needs to happen. So what did happen? Well, if you look in Acts chapter 20, you find that Paul actually did follow through on his, uh, his either his, his uh, intent or his threat to come to the Corinthian church. He goes to Achaia, probably spent a considerable amount of time. It appears that he was there for three months, probably mostly in Corinth. And it looks like he actually was there for the building up of the church. We know that because he evidently had a peaceful time there because he, there were two great things that happened. First of all, they did bring the contribution to Paul and Paul was able to take the contribution for famine relief in Jerusalem. But also it was at that point in time that Paul wrote his theological masterpiece, the book of Romans. Probably couldn't have done that if everybody was still backbiting and fighting each other. So we praise God. Paul's prayer was answered. And we're grateful for that. 
Lord, we do turn to you and pray that you would just teach us to pray like the Apostle Paul, God. We think about how many good things we've not seen and bad things we might have seen because uh, you've chosen to use our prayers uh, as an instrument of your grace in the life of others. So please help us to be disciplined. Help us to be purposeful. Help us to walk in holiness ourselves so we're not just so consumed with ourselves. Think about the sanctification that you are doing in the lives of others. Bless us and help us to be a praying church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.